Well, this morning we continue our Advent series. The word Advent means coming or arrival. And Advent is that season where Christians throughout the world celebrate the arrival of Jesus. His arrival to earth as a baby. His arrival in our hearts by faith. And as we await his future glorious second arrival. At our church during Advent, we're we're doing a series called the Songs of Christmas. Where we're taking beloved Christmas hymns and then pairing them with themes from, excuse me, the themes from the hymn with a passage from the book of Isaiah. So this morning, as we just sang, our song is Joy to the World. I'm going to be drawing themes from that and our passage that I'm going to read in a moment and be preaching through is Isaiah chapter 35. Now often when people sing to the, the song Joy to the World, and I don't know why this happened um, over the years. I, Isaac Watts wrote it years ago. Um, but the third verse is often left off, but we didn't leave it off this morning, not because we're hymn purists, like well, we're going to sing every verse, so that's stinking hymn, you know. Uh, it's not the reason we did, um, although that's maybe not wrong, um, but we sang it because it's just so stinking good. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow Far as the curse is found. And that's exactly what we're going to see happens or promised is going to happen in Isaiah 35. Wherever there's curse, which in the passage is going to be depicted by desert and danger, God promises to transform the cursed places in our lives into places of blessing and life. Jesus comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And one of the things that comes out in Isaiah 35 and the hymn Joys to the World, that when the people of God experience these joys, they don't just speak about them, they sing. So without further ado, let's read Isaiah 35. We're going to be reading all of the ten verses in the chapter And then we'll pray that God would be our teacher. The word of the Lord that came to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 35 goes like this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. And with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, 
The grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall not belong, excuse me, it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed of the Lord shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sign shall flee away. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me as we begin to study it together? Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that our hearts would be knit together in joy, not only with all the Christians throughout the world right now, today that are celebrating these same truths, and not only with the redeemed in heaven who are already singing, but that we would join with creation. Bursting into joy at the work that the Messiah has begun and will complete one day. Lead us in that direction, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I had a difficult time this week uh, studying this passage and Um, confession. That's actually true most weeks for me. If you stop by the office on Monday and Tuesday and say, how's it, how's the passage going? Uh, you're not going to be very hopeful (laughs) about Sunday. Um, at least if you take the countenance on my face as an indication of how Sunday is going to go. But that's Monday and Tuesday. Uh, most weeks. Some, some weeks I think I have a hard time because I'm, I'm not fully sure, like, what's going on in the passage, or at least what, what's going on in parts of the passage. Um, other weeks the difficulty comes because I know what's going on in the passage, and I know it's just gonna be hard to re-say. It's gonna be hard for some to hear. Um, other weeks I think I try and make it a little harder than it really needs to be, just because, uh, if it's hard, then my job is important. <laughs> Right? Like, I feel like it, my job matters if it's hard and we all want to justify um, our own jobs. I, I don't think that's the reason, or any of those reasons are the reasons it was difficult this week. I had a hard time with this week's passage because it was difficult to organize. At least when I was first studying the passage, it felt to me like God came to Isaiah, at least for these words, and and told Isaiah, I'm going to tell you a bunch of really good things. You write them down, you put them in a sack, and shake it up, and then just pull them out one idea at a time and rewrite them down. (laughs) Like that's what it it felt like, is just this sack of really good things that, that Isaiah was then pulling out and reading to us. That's what it felt like when I first started studying it, and that's what it still feels like. It's this collection of awesome things that God is going to do and is doing among the people of God through the work of the Messiah. So I think the best way to begin this sermon is just to dive right in. I'm going to kind of move through it again a few chunks at a time and then we'll talk about what it means for us. So what is God promising to us in this passage? Well, many good things, 
But let's look again at verses 1 and 2. They're kind of the whole passage in miniature here in these first two verses. We read, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. We'll talk about that in a second. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They, I think they, comes, shows up again in verses 9 and 10. They, the redeemed of the Lord, shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. In verse 1, the central imagery is introduced. The wilderness, the dry land, the desert, they all burst into a lush garden. It's like everything's a desert and then there's a spring rain and then boom, it's, it's alive again. The flowers um, that are spoken about here and their blossoms, they're not kind of small pitiful blossoms, but they're bright and abundant. And not only are they abundant blossoms, but they're happy blossoms, which is kind of weird to say, but you saw that in the passage, didn't you? Nature doesn't just bloom bright. Nature sings. In verse 2, then, God speaks about the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, quote, being given to it. I think being given to the desert. Which, that verse was kind of confusing to me at first, perhaps confusing to you as well. But I think what God means is something like this. Those places around the land of Israel that are renowned for their beauty. So for example, Lebanon is often, especially in the Old Testament, spoken of as this place with stately, huge cedar trees. The glorious cedar trees that they're then harvested and then brought around for various projects that happen. The temple being one of them. And I think what God's saying is the glory of these renowned places in Israel are going to be brought to ugly places. Desert-like places. It'd be like saying California Redwoods and the glory of Estes, the Rocky Mountains in Estes Park, Colorado. The glory of the blue glass Caribbean Sea. The glory of driving Skyline Drive in Shenandoah Forest in the fall. It's like the glory of those places being brought to Harrisburg. I mean, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Like, you want to see a forest? Well, you just look out one window, right? You want to see the mountains? You look out another one. You want the beach, breeze, and, and, and an ocean sunrise? You just, you just go out the front door. That's what's being talked about here. It's the kind of beauty with which places are going to be remade. Carmel and Sharon and Lebanon, they're not familiar to us, but these other places are, and that's what God's going to do. But the glory, the most special part of this renewed creation comes in verse 2. We're going to see the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord crowning uh, this renewed creation as the waters cover the sea is the special part of this renewed creation. I'm going to skip verses 3 and 4 at this time because I'm going to come back to them later. It's really the application of the passage. But look at 5, 6, and 7. Look what's promised here. We read that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. I mean, some of you, you've been to a burning hot beach, right? Saying this is going to be like gentle to walk in. In the thirsty ground, springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down. This dangerous place where wild animals could get you. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. The blind will see, the deaf will hear. A man who couldn't leap is going to leap like a deer. I mean, you ever seen a deer leap? <laughs> I mean, you give a deer a basketball, which I don't know how you do. They'd have to like kind of paw it. But they're going to dunk on an 18-foot goal. I mean, again, I don't know how they're going to do that exactly, but like deer can jump. There's going to be this miraculous transformation of everything that's broken. Everything that doesn't work the way we hope, is going to be transformed. This place where desert jackals would hide is going to become a safe wetland preserve. Look at verses 8 through 10. See this promise that's made to God's people. And a highway shall be there. So this place in the desert is hard to know where to walk and where to go and there's no signs, there's no roadmaps. It says there's going to be a highway there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. So take that to be, even if they're directionally challenged, they're, they're going to be able to figure it out. No lion shall be there. Nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But who will be found there? The redeemed of the Lord shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This highway that emerges in the desert has a name. It's called the way of holiness. In America, we name some of our roads and highways, don't we? Here in Harrisburg, we have Eisenhower Boulevard, right? And there's several others that are named. But I don't know of any roads here in America called the Way of Holiness. Right? We, we don't name our highways that. But what God is promising is that this highway is going to be safe. No lions, no other things you might fear on a desert highway. They're just not going to be there. I mean, just think about it. I mean, I know we don't have deserts here per se, but, but if you're driving across a desert and there's places, they're stretched where it just feels like you're nowhere, and you break down there, you're a little worried. There's no worry here. And there are parts of Harrisburg where some of you not, might not want to walk during the day, let alone at night. Imagine these places transformed into a moment. To be holy and safe and bright. That's what God's talking about here. And the place where the redeemed of the Lord and the ransomed of the Lord travel is a place with gladness and joy. It's a place without sorrow and sighing. It's worth dwelling on that for a moment. This highway is called the way of holiness. And not only is it safe and holy, 
the, the safe and holy passage to see in the glory of God. But it's a happy highway. This highway is not only the way and the truth, but it's also the life. Think about that. How, how like our God to make holiness and happiness merge together. If you're a Christian, then you have glimpses of this in your life. You have glimpses of moments of these times when you're pursuing Christ, you're going for holiness, you perhaps make a hard decision and, and, and you follow the Lord and there's maybe even a cost to that, but, but there's also a happiness to that. There's a goodness to, to pattern your life after Christ and that's a good thing, but it's, it's a fleeting thing in this life. What's being promised here is that holiness and joy that are merged and mingled together. That's going to be an all the time thing. There's no more struggle with sin. Everlasting joy, it says. No more sorrow, no more sin. And one of the things that makes this chapter and the promises therein so special is where it falls in the Bible. I mean, we didn't read it, and we're not teaching sequentially through the book of Isaiah, which is the way we normally teach through passages, because I think that tends to be a good thing, because then you see things you wouldn't see otherwise. And had we been doing that, we would have had chapter 34 right before this, of course. And I won't teach through the passage, but I'll tell you what's there. Chapter 35 and chapter 34 go together, but they don't really go together. They're foils of each other. They're really opposites of each other. Chapter 34 speaks of the judgment against godless nations, specifically the land of Edom. The land of Edom was just south of Israel. And the people of Edom were often enemies of the people of God. But, as is the case so often, not only were they enemies of the people of God, very often they were the envy of the people of God. And the land of Edom was green and lush. It was garden-like. But in chapter 34, God says, there's going to be a day when no more. Just look at one verse from this chapter. Chapter 34, verse 13. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its forests. You should hear the reverse of joy to the world, chapter three or verse 3. In chapter 35 of Isaiah. And it says, it, it shall be a haunt of jackals. You see, something significant's happening here. The point God's making in these two chapters of Isaiah is a point that's central to the whole book of Isaiah. And, and in a sense, it's central to the whole Bible. If you trust in man, Isaiah 34 and 35 are saying... In the end, you get a terrifying punishment that's desert-like. But if you trust in the Lord, if you trust in God, if you place your faith in Him, though what feels like a desert in this life will bloom into a glorious garden of grace. Don't trust in the promises of the world, God is saying to us. They're a mirage. And through the prophet Isaiah, God was calling his people. Indeed, he's calling to you and I right now. Place your hope in the Lord. 
As we transition to the next two points, I'm going to go more quickly. But before I say them, let me note one challenge to us to really squeeze all of the goodness out of chapter 35 of Isaiah. One challenge to singing joy to the world with heartfelt joy. That challenge for us is that at Christmas time, so often Christmas can just get squashed down to just mere sentimentality and really just platitudes, honestly. Advent can become nothing more than red and green decorations, getting the family together, watching movies, opening presents, hanging lights on a freshly cut Christmas tree. I like these things. I mean, some of you do as well. But is that what Christmas is about? It's not. Those are the things that are supposed to remind us of what Christmas is about. Like sentimentality is, is removing, it's, it's like gutting the real meaning of Christmas. And Christmas can just be full of platitudes sometimes. A platitude is this nice sounding saying that's hollowed out of its power because it's no longer anchored in God. I mean, consider sayings like, time heals all wounds, and everything happens for a reason, and what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, and everything happens for a reason, and everything works out at the end, and have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I mean, these sound nice, but they don't have much effect on us because they're powerless by themselves, if they're even true, some of them. Is that what Isaiah 35 is? I mean, I think it's important to wrestle with this. Is that what Isaiah 35 is? Just hollowed out promises from an impotent God. I mean, how do we know these promises that God is making to his people here will come true? Well, that's what we need to talk about next. I want to talk about two places where we see God can do what he's talking about here. We're going to look at one place in Isaiah and one place in the Gospel of Luke. Now, there's lots of places we could go to see that God can do what he's saying he can do. But it makes sense, since we're in Isaiah, to just go one chapter over, look in Isaiah. And the one in Luke makes sense, I think, because the same language is being used as is used here in chapter 35. So, let's look at chapter 36 and 37 of Isaiah. So, if you have a Bible, you can just kind of glance over there. I'm not going to be reading hardly any of it. Um, but if you do look, just in my Bible, I have to flip over one page. But you notice immediately, at least you should, it's set up in paragraphs that look more like a story. It's because it is. Most of Isaiah is poetry, but, but here it descends into a narrative account of an event that happened among the people of God. You can also read about it in the historical books. I'd love to preach chapters 37 and, or 36 and 37 long sometime, but that won't be today. I'm just gonna kinda skim the context. But what's happening here is the Assyrian army has come down to Jerusalem and surrounded the city. We don't have walls around Harrisburg, but it would be like, um, if we did, uh, a foreign nation coming down and surrounding the city and we all hunkered down in the city and were terrified. Feeble knees and anxious hearts. And then there's this spokesperson for the Assyrian army. And it's as though he grabs a megaphone and stands on the wall. And on behalf of the 
king of Assyria, he says to us, God's people, essentially, repent or perish. Surrender and we won't kill you, or don't surrender and we will. There's this fascinating line, at least fascinating to me, in his speech in verse 7 of chapter 36. This is one thing that he says. He says, kind of the stooge for the Assyrian army, he says, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, is it not he whose high places and altars, this is King Hezekiah, has removed? King Hezekiah saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now, okay, there's a lot going on there. What, why is that fascinating? This line from the Assyrian spokesperson implies that the people of God had become so overrun with idolatry that when King Hezekiah, who's actually a good king as far as Old Testament kings go, which I know is a low bar, when he actually removed the idolatry of the high places to the surrounding nations, it looked like King Hezekiah was causing the people to go into idolatry. What I mean is this. When Hezekiah goes, man, there's a ton of idolatry going along on these high places. I'm going to remove it and say, worship on this altar. To the surrounding nations, it looked like, because Israel had become so mingled with idolatry, it looked like Hezekiah was getting rid of the Lord. Because all they knew of Israel's religion was idolatry. Which is both fascinating and convicting to think about how the world might look at the church. But regardless, Hezekiah says, not not anymore. Not under my reign. He removes the high places and they return to trust in the Lord. But they're fearful. And Isaiah takes this taunt from this Assyrian kind of emissary and and, and puts it in trembling hands before the Lord. says, Lord, what are you going to do? I don't see a way out. The Lord heard the taunt and he hears the prayer. And in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord comes and slaughters the vast majority of the Assyrian army. And those who are alive, they wake up with their king and they say, I guess we should go home. (laughs) And they go home. And we read in the text, chapter 37, that the king is assassinated almost immediately. (laughs) It's a wild story. But the point of chapter 36 and 37 is to say that trust in the Lord is not sentimentality and it's not a platitude. We see this in the book of Luke too. I know this is flipping over a lot of your Bible, but in chapter 7 in the gospel of Luke... There's this time when, when John the Baptist, so John the Baptist begins the Gospel of Luke with a lot of energy and the, the Old Testament says there's going to be a forerunner who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so John the Baptist bursts on the scene and he's getting people ready for um, the Messiah to come and do his ministry and, and he does. But things kind of start to drift and, and, and in a sense, at least in his mind, and he says some things that get him in trouble and he's, he winds up in jail and he's like, I don't know what's going on. I thought the Messiah was going to be here. And he begins to question if the things he thought about Jesus were true. And so from jail, this is how the conversation goes. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. 
And John, from jail, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That's how confused he was at the time. Didn't seem like the things that were happening in his life and the lives of those he loved and cared about was what he expected to happen when the Messiah would come. And so the men, verse 20, said, when the men had come to him, they said, this is to Jesus, they say to Jesus, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Verse 21. In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, you want proof, John, that I'm the Messiah? You want proof that your trust in me is not sentimentality, it's just not warm fuzzies, it's not platitudes? Look what I can do. If we've been reading through the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, carefully, we should have heard there in Luke 7 the very things that were promised. The blind see, the deaf hear, and the lame leap like a deer. So, let's go to our final question this sermon. Because of God's wonderful promises, promises that they're so good, They're almost hard to imagine them coming true. Because of these types of promises, and because God is able to bring them about, what should we do? I love it as a pastor when the passage itself makes it super easy to be a preaching pastor. Because verse 3 and 4 tell us exactly what we're supposed to do. So let me just read those. Verse 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. Recompense, excuse me, of God. And he will come and save you. Now, The idea of retribution from the Lord that's promised here, as Jason pointed out from a different passage last week, it's actually a good thing for the people of God. Like if Assyria is surrounding our church and they're about to level injustices against us and we're terrified, that's a different thing than we feel today. I mean, it's raining outside, but it's not that bad, right? Right? But, but this is a different thing that's being promised here. It's envisioning a scenario that maybe some of you ex- have experienced over the last year or more. I know some stories here in this church, and, and there have been great injustices that have taken place to some of our dearly loved members in this church. And what God is saying here to the people of God is that believers can find strength and encouragement He wants us to use our words to say to those believers who have cancer. 
And to say to those who are persecuted to their, with their, for their faith. And to use our words as we speak to those who have been cheated and wronged. And to use our words as we speak to those who have sorrow and sign. To say, be strong. Fear not. Your God will come. And it means that what we're doing here at Advent, indeed, what I hope that I'm doing right now for you, is a proper application of this passage. As we gather here as God's people to fellowship with believers, to sing songs of worship, to hear the word of God preached and taught, to sing to each other and to say to each other, even as I'm saying to you now, the Messiah has come and he will come again. And when he does, he will complete the salvation that he began. Lift up your heads. Joy is coming to this world. Christian, take this hope and give it to others during this Christmas season. And don't give sentimentality or hollow promises, but give the rock-solid, blood-bought promises of God. He loves you. He cares for you. He has redeemed and is redeeming and will redeem you. But I should clarify something here. This passage in Isaiah, it uses what we might call in-house encouragement. Language. The passage says, Behold, your God. And it speaks of the redeemed. And it speaks of those who are ransomed of the Lord. What if God is not your God? What if you haven't come into a relationship with this living God? What I would say to you is, I am So glad that you are here this morning. I mean, what better day to take these promises that are given to the people of God and say, I want in on those. Can I have them too? And the answer from the Messiah is, yes, you can. Free of charge. What better time to turn from trusting in the salvations that the world is offering to us, which are no salvations at all, and to experience holiness and happiness merging together because of what Jesus will begin to do in your life. I want that for you. If that's something you want to talk about more, you can grab me after the service, you can send an email, you can make a phone call. There are dozens of people here that would love to talk about that with you. And I know the Christians that are here, we all have friends and family and co-workers who don't know the Lord. Some of them who we only get to see a few times a year. Maybe one of them being at Christmas. Now what better season than to give them Not just the words Merry Christmas, but the meaning of a Merry Christmas. Let me close like this. Isaiah 35 was given to people who would later go into exile for their sins. There was this line in one of the verses that said they're going to return to Zion with singing. So a return. So Isaiah is kind of over here looking... uh, into the future, and he's envisioning a time where um, 
great hope and promises, but that great hope and promise is going to come after they return from exile. But here's the deal. As one commentator pointed out, actually several, and I think I, I, this is exactly how I would see it. They're going to go away and they're going to come back and that's good. But the good of going away and then coming back is not a good that's good enough to describe the good of this passage. The promises here are too big and too bright and too beautiful. What's being described here is the great and glorious reversal that's promised and spoken of throughout the Bible. What do I mean? In the Garden of Eden, our parents failed to trust in the Lord. And that garden that they inhabited, they were kicked out of, and they lived in a place with thorns and thistles infesting the ground. And what Isaiah 35 and the rest of the Bible is saying that in the work of the Messiah, in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension to the throne of the universe, and in his future great and glorious return, a reversal is going to take place. That anywhere and everywhere there is curse, God will come and make his blessings flow. And all sorrow and all sign, as this passage says, will flee away. If your hands are weak, if your heart is anxious, know that one day, as we're promised in the book of Revelation, God will come and wipe every tear away. Chapter 21, verse 4. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Because as it says, quote, the former things have passed away. We're familiar with these former things. But they're going to go away. And between that day and this day, we strengthen feeble knees. And encourage anxious hearts by gathering together regularly to look each other in the eye and say, Joy to the world. Joy to the world. Would you join me in prayer as the worship team comes back up for one more song? Heavenly Father, I pray this morning for all of us, but I pray especially. For those among us who feel the prick of thorns and thistles. Perhaps feel as though they're even tangled up in them. And the current situation is such that it's hard, it's difficult, almost even impossible to imagine what it would be like for things to change. I pray this morning, Lord through the preaching of the word and through the promises you're making through Isaiah to us for our good, that you would blow away the clouds, even if just for a moment, and let us see us as you are strong and able to do more than we could ask or imagine. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ.